Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hello again, my Bible study friends. I'm so excited you're back with me as we continue to dig into the pages of God's Word, as we hear more from Job and his friends. We once again have so much to discuss today, so let's just dive right back in, shall we? Ridicule, scorn, reproach, contempt, criticism. Just saying those words makes my heart heavy for Job. Have you ever been devastated by the false accusations or an untrue allegation of a friend? or ridiculed and misunderstood by someone you love and trust? My guess is that we can all say we've experienced any or even all of these at some point in our lives, maybe even right now. Ouch. As we know from previous episodes, Job is a godly man who lost most everything in his life and is now living with constant physical pain. All the while his friends keep insisting some secret sin must be causing all of his suffering. Basically, they tell him over and over again to stop being so stubborn and ask forgiveness for his sin. Their well-intentioned words leave Job feeling attacked, like a laughingstock, misunderstood. Living with all this pain, Job's immediate response continues to be raw and sarcastic. In the midst of the seemingly constant rebukes and criticism of his friends, Job calls them out for their weak attempts to make everything neat and tidy. Even though Job's friends were only trying to help, their cruel words only inflicted more pain. It's so easy to slip into the trap of pointing a finger at sin instead of extending a helping hand to people in pain. Harsh assumptions poured out on an individual who is struggling can sting like salt to a heart that is deeply wounded. Further, Job's friends oversimplify his suffering, making it completely his fault and insisting he has the ability to end it by repenting. In chapter 11, we will meet the third of Job's friends, Zophar. And my, oh my, is he by far the least considerate and most arrogant of the friends. Full of anger, Zophar lashes out at Job, saying that Job deserved more punishment, not less. It seems that Zophar was the kind of person who had an answer for everything. He was totally insensitive to Job's struggles. Well, with that said, why don't we just go ahead and move on to today's study content. Please don't forget, though, that we are reading the more modern-day language the message version of the Bible provides— versus the New Living Translation for these various conversations between Job and his friends. I encourage you to read along with your preferred Bible translation, or be sure to read your study version of these chapters at a later time, for comparison's sake. I will once again place a link in the show notes to the YouVersion's Parallel Mode, the one that I often use in my study time to view the verses from various Bible translations side by side. Okay, Job chapter 11 from the Message Translation of the Bible reads, Now it was the turn of Zophar from Namath. What a flood of words. Shouldn't we put a stop to it? Should this kind of loose talk be permitted? Job, do you think you can carry on like this and we'll say nothing? That we'll let you rail and mock and not step in? You claim, my doctrine is sound and my conduct impeccable. How I wish God would give you a piece of his mind. Tell you what's what. I wish he'd show you how wisdom looks from the inside, for true wisdom is mostly inside. But you can be sure of this, you haven't gotten half of what you deserve. Do you think you can explain the mystery of God? Do you think that you can diagram God Almighty? 
God is far higher than you can imagine, far deeper than you can comprehend, stretching farther than Earth's horizons, far wider than the endless ocean. If he happens along, throws you in jail, then hauls you into court, can you do anything about it? He sees through vain pretensions, spots evil a long way off. No one pulls the wool over his eyes. Hollow men, hollow women, will wise up about the same time mules learn to talk. Still, if you set your heart on God and reach out to him, if you scrub your hands of sin and refuse to entertain evil in your home, you'll be able to face the world unashamed, to keep a firm grip on life, guiltless and fearless. You'll forget your troubles. They'll be like old faded photographs. Your world will be washed in sunshine, every shadow dispersed by dawn. Full of hope, you'll relax, confident again. You'll look around, sit back, and take it easy. Expansive, without a care in the world, you'll be hunted out by many for your blessing. But the wicked will see none of this. They're headed down a dead-end road with nothing to look forward to. Nothing. Yikes. And to think these words came from a friend. The Bible recap explains what we see happening here in this way. Today we met Job's third of three friends, Zophar. We've already heard from Eliphaz and Bildad, who all gave the reasons they thought were responsible for Job's life falling apart. The hard part about listening to these guys is that sometimes they do say things that are true. It's not like it's all wrong. For example, when Zophar is talking about God in 11.6, he says, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. First of all, this is generally true of all of us, not just Job. We all deserve death. Yet God lets us live. That's His mercy. And the fact that we get to live on God's earth and breathe God's air and eat God's food, that's so much more than we deserve. That's His grace. So if you're like me, right about now, you might be wondering whether the next friend we meet will be the one to support and encourage Job during this devastating time in his life. But sadly, this friend also fails to fulfill that role. So far as words to Job close the first cycle of conversations between Job and his friends. Eliphaz and Bildad offered Job few words of comfort and compassion. Sadly, Zophar was no different. In fact, his harsh and insensitive words poured more salt into Job's wounds. Like his two friends, Zophar also accused Job of filling his speeches with empty, idle words. He extended no mercy. Zophar alleged Job deserved more suffering than he had received because his suffering was not proportioned to his sin. Did you catch it when Zophar said he wanted God himself to intervene and expose the true state of Job's heart? When he said, oh, if only God would speak, if only he would tell you what he thinks. Can you imagine receiving such cruel words from a friend? Ouch. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study adds these perspectives for our consideration here. So far, I lived in a legalistic world, believing God ruled one way. A world where God rewards those who do good and punishes those who do evil. A world where God doesn't allow the innocent to suffer. Sadly, we find the same philosophy in our Christian community today. It's hurtful and biblically unsound. It places fault and blame on people without proof of guilt and fails to take into account the truths of God's word with regard to pain and suffering. Oh, what an important reminder for us as we seek to comfort others. We then hear Zophar continue adding insult to injury as he accuses Job for failing to comprehend the majesty and greatness of God. He insisted if Job had, Job would never have questioned God. According to Zophar, we should never question God because his ways are unsearchable, his wisdom incomprehensible. So how could Job be so arrogant as to oppose God's actions toward him? Though peppered with truth, Zophar's words regarding God's nature and character are not the full truth. Please be encouraged when hearing these valuable truths Zophar left out in his speech to Job. 
God welcomes our questions. After all, He already knows what's in our hearts. He promises that when we seek Him with all our heart, we will find Him. And though we may never fully know God, He reveals much of His nature and character through His written Word and through Jesus. It's in His nature and character we find truths and promises we can cling to during our most difficult trials. He will reveal as much as we need to know in these moments. Verse 5 study goes on to say, Zophar lacked perspective. He lived in a world that allowed for no gray areas. Thankfully, God's written word gives us a greater, more comprehensive perspective. In Job chapter 1, we get a rare glimpse of a heavenly conference between God and Satan. If we were in a court of law, Job would have been God's exhibit A, his key piece of evidence to prove his children will trust him even when they don't understand the trials and suffering they endure. God had a purpose for Job's suffering, and it had nothing to do with Job's actions. Zophar lacked context, and it colored his judgment of Job's situation. How often are we also guilty of the same thinking in times of our own suffering, and maybe even in the struggles of others? We lack context, and it colors our judgment of a situation. The Jesus Bible, regarding verses 1-11, through reads, People often make the mistake of giving simplistic answers to those who are in difficult situations. Such was the case with Job's friend Zophar. Regardless of Job's insistence that he was innocent of wrongdoing, his third companion began his analysis of Job's situation based on the flawed assumption that his friend's great torment was clear evidence of his hidden moral guilt. Citing God's infinite wisdom, he insinuated that not only was Job receiving his due penalty, but if the full depth of Job's sin were revealed, it would be just for him to receive far greater punishment than he has thus far experienced. However, this insensitive friend evidently missed his own hypocrisy. Since no one can be judged faultless, compared to the perfection of God, Zophar also merited the same penalty he thought Job deserved. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used an exaggerated contrast to warn his followers of well-intentioned but damaging double standards. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 and 5. Scripture encourages believers to help and guide others as they deal with wrongdoing, but not before serious self-examination and dealing honestly with personal failures. So just to summarize our time in chapter 11, we see Zophar was the next of the friends to take a stand against Job. His world was black and white. To him, every person was either wicked or righteous. There were no shades of gray, no uncertainties. Zophar was impatient with Job. He insulted him and accused him. He never really heard Job's story or became sensitive to his trouble. Instead, he was eager to jump in and sort out the case in his own way. Oh, friends, we would be so wise to recognize and remember that another person's suffering is a place where God is at work. Angels should fear to tread there, and so should we. But if we do tread there, if we do join them, we should first take off our shoes, recognizing that it is holy ground over which we walk, and always follow James's counsel in chapter 1, verse 19, to lead with your ears, follow up with your tongue. I just can't help but feel heartbroken for Job as we finish this attack of words from Zophar. Moving on, though, let's listen to Job's response in chapter 12, which reads, Job answered Zophar, I'm sure you speak for all the experts, and when you die, there'll be no one left to tell us all how to live. But don't forget that I also have a brain. I don't intend to play second fiddle to you. It doesn't take an expert to know these things. I'm ridiculed by my friends. 
So that's the man who had conversations with God, ridiculed without mercy. Look at the man who never did wrong. It's easy for the well-to-do to point their fingers in blame, for the well-fixed to pour scorn on the strugglers. Crooks reside safely in high-security houses. Insolent blasphemers live in luxury. They've bought and paid for a God who will protect them. But ask the animals what they think. Let them teach you. Let the birds tell you what's going on. Put your ear to the earth. Learn the basics. Listen. The fish in the ocean will tell you their stories. Isn't it clear that they all know and agree that God is sovereign, that he holds all things in his hand? Every living soul, yes, every breathing creature. Isn't this all just common sense, as common as a sense of taste? Do you think the elderly have a corner on wisdom, that you have to grow old before you understand life? True wisdom and real power belong to God. From him we learn how to live, and also what to live for. If he tears something down, it's down for good. If he locks people up, they're locked up for good. If he holds back the rain, there's a drought. If he lets it loose, there's a flood. Strength and success belong to God. Both deceived and deceiver must answer to him. He strips experts of their boasted credentials, exposes judges as witless fools. He divests kings of their royal garments, then ties a rag around their waists. He strips priests of their robes and fires high officials from their jobs. He forces trusted sages to keep silence, deprives elders of their good sense and wisdom. He dumps contempt on famous people, disarms the strong and mighty. He shines a spotlight into caves of darkness, hauls deepest darkness into the noonday sun. He makes nations rise and then fall, builds up some and abandons others. He robs world leaders of their reason and then sends them off to no man's land. They grope in the dark without a clue, lurching and staggering like drunks. The Bible recap has this to say about chapter 12. Previously, Zophar said a lot of true things about God. It was when he started drawing conclusions about Job that things took a turn. And we got to hear Job's reply where he started getting sarcastic with his friends. Did you catch that? In 12.2, he said, You people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. In 12.5, Job had some words of wisdom for those of us who want to comfort grieving friends. He said, People who are at ease mock those in trouble. They give a push to people who are stumbling. Job was pointing out that those who aren't struggling don't seem to understand those who are. In fact, they have contempt for them, not compassion. It seems like Job was beginning to sense their contempt for him. Maybe some of this was rooted in jealousy? I know it sounds crazy to be jealous of Job, but this was a man who had everything, was honorable and respected, and this might be the first time in their lives that they've had a chance to feel superior to him. And maybe they jumped at the chance to try to identify his sins because of their own insecurities. In chapter 12, verse 9, Job acknowledges that God is the author of everything, even when he isn't the active agent in it. God didn't commit these actions toward Job, but if God could have stopped it and he didn't, didn't it still kind of terminate on him? This is a really mysterious aspect of God's character. Don't try to overlook it, but don't try to understand it fully just yet. He's not the agent of evil but it's a necessary part of the story he's writing. We'll talk more about this as we move through scripture, but don't get hung up on this. Don't let it turn you off from what you're reading. Resist the urge to reach conclusions about God based on what you think that humans deserve, unless you're primarily recalling that we deserve nothing but hell and death. Tara Lee goes on to say, I'll be honest, most if not all of my frustrations about God's actions are rooted in the lie that I deserve something. Deserve is my least favorite word. It's disgusting to me. It's entitled. You'll see it in advertising everywhere. Companies appealing to your entitlement try to get you to feed on your self-centeredness. 
It's disgusting to me because I know how gullible I am when it comes to appealing to my comfort and pleasure. With that said, let's lean in here as we hear Joe reminding his friends that this world is broken and life isn't always so clear-cut as they think it is. The unrighteous sleep securely. Justice is corrupted. The world's system is cruel, ineffective, and unfair. But Job doesn't give up on God or cave under the critical eye of others. Instead, he begins to respond with truth, and the truth Job knows is based on the character of God. In keeping with the courtroom analogies in his rebuttal, Job focuses on the sovereign power of God to control circumstances, control nature, confuse and silence the prideful and foolish, and worldly authorities even. God brings darkness to light and establishes or destroys the nations. God rules over everything. In short, God is in charge of it all. Job seems to understand that all wisdom, power, and authority belong to God, and his power is far greater than anyone and anything. Without a doubt, when our lives and our circumstances turn upside down, we can always trust that God is in control. Nothing in the universe happens, and nothing can touch your life or mine except by God's permission and is filtered through his hands. If, like Job's friends, we constantly try to reason with ourselves in an effort to assign or find a clear-cut answer to every problem, we miss the magnitude of God's character. Job's plea and our only real hope in times when our lives are in chaos is to go back to what is true about God. When this world doesn't make sense, and it often won't, what gives us peace and security is the unlimited, all-powerful nature of God. Understanding the authority of God brings sanity to this crazy world. And even when we are ridiculed and criticized, we can still give thanks because our God is in charge. Friends, the next time your situation starts to spiral out of control or you feel the sting of harsh accusations, may what we have heard from Job so far encourage you to stop and take a few moments to acknowledge and say out loud the greatness of our God. The Jesus Bible says this about chapters 12 through 14. In his longest response to the criticism of his friends, Job continued to reject allegations that his sin was to blame for his suffering. Instead, he reminded them that their self-righteous analysis failed to account for calamities that befall faithful followers of God, as well as for the prosperity of those who purposefully carry out evil. With biting sarcasm, Job challenged his factless companions to consult the creatures of the earth who were obviously more aware than them that the Lord ultimately rules over all that transpires on the earth. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 in the NLT reads, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. The Jesus Bible goes on to say that we see here in verse 20 of Romans chapter 1 that Paul agreed with Job's belief about creation's ability to reveal God, reminding the New Testament readers that the truth about God's eternal power and divine nature can be best understood from nature. The complexity and arrangement of each element in the cosmos, as well as the order and detail of the smallest atom, can attest to the controlling hand of a purposeful and loving creator. So clear are his fingerprints that those who claim ignorance of God are without excuse. With this knowledge also comes the certainty that no one can approach the Lord since humanity's flawed nature is starkly inferior to the one whose glory is declared by the heavens. So while everyone can learn about God's characteristics from nature— The separation caused by sin required the sacrifice of Christ to build that foundational bridge, which makes knowing God possible at all. Thank you, Jesus, for building that bridge for us. Amazing. Moving on in our reading today, in chapter 13, we hear Job continuing his response to Zophar by saying, Yes, I've seen all this with my own eyes, heard and understood it with my very own ears. Everything you know, I know, so I'm not taking a backseat to any of you. 
I'm taking my case straight to God Almighty. I've had it with you. I'm going directly to God. You graffiti my life with lies. You're a bunch of pompous quacks. I wish you'd shut your mouths. Silence is your only claim to wisdom. Listen now while I make my case. Consider my side of things for a change. Or are you going to keep on lying to do God a service? To make up stories to get him off the hook? Why do you always take his side? Do you think he needs a lawyer to defend himself? How would you fare if you were in the witness stand? Your lies might convince a jury, but would they convince God? He'd reprimand you on the spot if he detected bias in your witness. Doesn't his splendor put you in awe? Aren't you afraid to speak cheap lies before him? Your wise sayings are knick-knack wisdom, good for nothing but gathering dust. So hold your tongue while I have my say, then I'll take whatever I have coming to me. Why do I go out on a limb like this and take my life in my hands? Because even if he killed me, I'd keep on hoping. I'd defend my innocence to the very end. Just wait. This is going to work out for the best. My salvation. If I were guilt-stricken, do you think I'd be doing this, laying myself on the line before God? You'd better pay attention to what I'm telling you. Listen carefully with both ears. Now that I've laid out my defense, I'm sure that I'll be acquitted. Can anyone prove charges against me? I've said my piece. I rest my case. Please, God, I have two requests. Grant them so I'll know I count with you. First, lay off the affliction. The terror is too much for me. Second, address me directly so I can answer you, or let me speak, and then you answer me. How many sins have been charged against me? Show me the list. How bad is it? Why do you stay hidden and silent, treating me like your enemy? Why kick me around like an old tin can? Why beat a dead horse? You compile a long list of mean things about me, even hold me accountable for the sins of my youth. You hobble me so I can't move about. You watch every move I make and brand me as a dangerous character. Like something rotten, human life fast decomposes, like a moth-eaten shirt or a mildewed blouse. As pastors of a church, Jason and I have watched dear friends deal with soul-crushing suffering. We have been invited into the pain and had a front-row seat to watch those we deeply love grieve, cope, grieve some more, and by God's grace, heal even. We have learned with all certainty that the processing of pain isn't the same for everyone. It's deeply personal and different from person to person and situation to situation. But the consistent part of the process is just that. It's a process. In thinking over the process of grief, First Five Suffering and Sovereignty Study has this to say. Over the last few chapters, we've had Job and his friends ping-pong arguments back and forth. There is a process to his pain, and where he lands in Job chapter 13 is both hopeful and heartbreaking. Isn't that life? Grief comes in waves and makes everything feel uncertain. One minute we are confident, the next minute we are caught in a riptide of doubt and fear. Yet in the midst of Job's confusion, he clings to God's character. As we read through Job's replies, look for what he says about God. Through his rebuttals in Job 6, 9, 10, and 12, Job extols the attributes and character of God. Here are a few things Job says. God is worthy of loyalty and faith. God is a righteous judge. God is the answer giver. God alone has wisdom, might, counsel, and understanding. It is Job's faith in God that leads him to say in Job chapter 13 that even if God would slay Job, he will still hope in God. Job's confidence in God's righteous judgment leads Job to conclude he will see God face to face. Job is convinced of his integrity before the Lord, and only the upright stand before God. Job 13 is a heartbreaking highlight for Job so far. Despite his friend's accusations, Job has wrestled well with the grief and pain of suffering. He doesn't have answers, 
but Job trusts what he doesn't know to the one who knows all. I love that each chapter shows Job in a real and raw way, trying to reconcile his emotions with the truth of who God is. Knowing who God is doesn't necessarily change Job's circumstances or ours. Life isn't easy, and every question doesn't have an easy answer. But the process is part of the point, and I'm grateful that the book of Job gives us an example of what that messy, hard process looks like. So friends, do you remember back in our intro for the book of Job in episode 11 when I mentioned the worship song by Shane and Shane, Though You Slay Me? Well, here in chapter 13, verse 15, Job references the verse that inspired the song when he says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job knew the only place his hope was found. After all he's been through, even as a righteous man who has been wrongly called to account by his friends, he knows that the mercy of God was his only salvation, not even the understanding of his friends. If you're in a dark place, dig deep into the story of Job. He gets it. And as I mentioned, his words have been turned into a beautiful song called Though You Slay Me, which I've linked once again in the show notes. I think it'll be a real comfort to you. Let's listen in once again as I read a few of the lyrics from this song. I come, God, I come. I return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You struck me down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love, that I might know you in your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. My heart and flesh may fail, the earth below give way, but with my eyes, with my eyes I'll see the Lord, lifted high on that day. Behold the Lamb that was slain, and I'll know that every tear was worth it all. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you run me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. Though tonight I'm crying out, let this cup pass from me now. You're still all that I need. You're enough for me. You're enough for me. Oh, my heart. So, so much wisdom and goodness found in these lyrics. Please, please promise me that you will continue to listen over and over again to this song in the weeks to come as we continue our study in the book of Job together. The Message Devotional Bible has this to say about Job's response. After resting his case with his prosecutorial friends in Job chapters 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 19, we will see Job begin cross-examining God, the judge, in chapters 13, verse 20, through chapter 14, verse 22. In chapter 13, verse 3, he told his friends, I've had it with you. I'm going directly to God. In his suffering, Job suddenly realized an immense dignity that he would not let go of, the worth of his life before God. In that realization, he asked two things. He wanted to know that he counted to God, and he wanted to address him directly. He insisted upon intimacy with God, not information about him. He didn't want facts. He wanted a face-to-face encounter. And perhaps that is what all of us who are suffering want. Not a definitive explanation, but a divine encounter. Job's longing for that encounter brought him to a place of humility that caused him to reflect on his morality, as we will see in the following reading of Job chapter 14. We're all adrift in the same boat. Too few days, too many troubles. We spring up like wildflowers in the desert and then wilt, transient as the shadow of a cloud. Do you occupy your time with such fragile wisps? Why even bother hauling me into court? There's nothing much to us to start with. How do you expect us to mount anything? Mortals have a limited lifespan. You've already decided how long we'll live. You set the boundary and no one can cross it. 
So why not give us a break? Ease up. Even ditch diggers get occasional days off. For a tree, there is always hope. Chop it down and it still has a chance. Its roots can put out fresh sprouts. Even if the roots are old and gnarled, its stump long dormant. At the first whiff of water, it comes to life. Buds and grows like a sapling. But men and women, they die and stay dead. They breathe their last and that's it. Like lakes and rivers that have dried up, parched reminders of what once was. So mortals lie down and never get up, never wake up again, never. Why don't you just bury me alive? Get me out of the way until your anger cools. But don't leave me there. Set a date when you will see me again. If we humans die, will we live again? That's my question. And through these difficult days, I keep hoping, waiting for the final change, for resurrection. Homesick with longing for the creature you made, you'll call and I'll answer. You'll watch over every step I take, but you won't keep track of my missteps. My sins will be stuffed in a sack and thrown into the sea, sunk in a deep ocean. Meanwhile, mountains wear down and boulders break up. Stones wear smooth and soil erodes, and you relentlessly grind down our hope. You're too much for us. As always, you get the last word. We don't like it, and our faces show it, but you send us off anyway. If our children do well for themselves, we'll never know it. If they do badly, we're spared the hurt. Body and soul, that's it for us. A lifetime of pain, a lifetime of sorrow. She reads truth, suffering, and the God who speaks steady encourages us in Job chapters 13 and 14 to consider. Where does Job's hope lie, and where does our own? Pause for a moment to reflect back on one of your own darkest times. Perhaps you tossed and turned for many sleepless nights, unsuccessfully attempting to unravel the tangled web created by bad decisions. Perhaps you agonized over a bitter and angry child or spouse or close friend. Perhaps physical pain incessantly pierced and jabbed at you. Perhaps, perhaps. No matter what our individual calamities, each one of us has been or will someday be there with Job, drained of strength and courage to face even the next hour. Where can we turn? Where can we place our hope? And how? We may have to venture outside Job chapters 13 and 14 to knit together those slender strands that constitute hope, especially in the midst of the unrelenting pain that chews away at every part of our lives. At this point in his terrible journey, Job contrasted human hope, quite unfavorably, to a chopped down tree. Even though the tree had been destroyed, it sprouted again when watered, not so with those who sleep in death. With great courage, Job had previously declared that he was prepared to defend himself before God, knowing full well that no godless person could stand in his presence. But like most of our courageous statements, Job's expectations faded almost as quickly as he spoke them. He was back in the gloom of his torment and suffering. For Job, the steady and irreversible disintegration of mountains and rock in the natural world were a fitting metaphor for the erosion of his hope. Of course, that is not the end of Job's story, or ours. We affirm with many throughout the ages that our faithful God does restore our lives and comfort us in our pain. We believe that we will be carried through the deep waters and the ravaging fire. We hold fast to the hope that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and we believe God has the power to do all He's promised to do. This means that if we are in Jesus Christ, we have crossed over from death to life, even now. Did you catch that? It's a truth worth repeating, this time with the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, who tell us that right now, at this very moment, we are seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. How do we respond? I confess I'm tempted to be a bit skeptical from time to time. You too? Thankfully, there's another path on which we set out at this point. 
Even in the crucible of our suffering and discouragement, we can take up the mantle of the psalmist in chapter 72, verses 14 through 18, when he reminds us that we have the privilege of declaring God's goodness, of proclaiming the riches of God's immeasurable and precious grace, and of being increasingly thankful. Gratitude trumps grumpiness every time, in all circumstances. The Apostle Paul affirmed that as well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, when saying, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Moving on, we see in the back half of chapter 14, Job gets kind of bummed out talking about his future, and that makes sense given all he's been through. Let's cut him some slack and not rush him to healing. After all, his friends certainly didn't. In all honesty, it's heartbreaking to imagine how frustrated Job must be with his situation. He has lost everything and is in unimaginable pain and has no support from those around him. But one thing this time of suffering does give him is the opportunity to reflect on what he believes to be true. When all else is stripped away, what else does he have? Through these thoughts, Job comes to understand something very critical about himself and therefore humankind as a whole. In verse 4 and on, he says, He understands that he is impure and has no hopes of being anything but. He knows that sin has touched him from the very beginning and his hope of shaking it off is impossible. We, my friends, are exactly the same. Job understood that no one could be born pure from impure people. We are born with a heritage of sin in us from the very beginning of our life on earth, and this is where death enters the scene, as we learned previously in our studies of Genesis chapter 3. Not only are we born impure, but we also have no way to reach purity and goodness on our own. Because of sin, we are nothing, so we can produce nothing that adds value to God. Friends, that is as hard to say as it is to hear. It can be hard to really truly believe. The reality of our sinful nature seems impossible to grasp, and we will try to twist it to be more acceptable to our sense of self. But that is what Satan would have us do. We do not need to twist the truth of our impurity because God makes it clear that He loves us in the midst of our unworthiness. Understanding our complete sinfulness brings us to the reality of the true greatness of God. When we ignore the reality of who we are as sinners, we diminish the holy work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the amazing transformation the Holy Spirit is working in us. Job is stuck in an impossible situation. He's hurt, broken, hopeless, and wishing for death. Listen once again to what we heard Job say in verse 14. If we humans die, will we live again? That's my question. All through these difficult days, I keep hoping, waiting for the final change for resurrection. He's realized that he needs his sins to be covered, and he trusts that God will do it. We haven't seen yet what resurrection will come in Job's story, but we've seen what came in ours, my friends. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 19 reads, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Long story short, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we found the cover for sin that Job so desperately longed for in these verses. So amazing. As we are nearing the end of today's episode, can I just say that I know there are a million different scenarios that could have led you to this podcast. But whatever the case, I am praying for you right now, right this minute. You, yes, you, my friend. God knows your name, your circumstances, and exactly what he has in mind for you as we continue to dig into his word together.
I consider it a great honor to journey alongside you. I am humbled that you all keep coming back episode after episode to study God's Word with me. We're in it together, and I'm cheering you on every step of the way. With that said, will you please join me in prayer? Father God, you alone have absolute authority over everything in our lives. You are God Most High, and you stand in the shadow, ruling over all things. There is nothing outside the reach of your limitless power. Any weakness, difficulty, or need we face presents no problem for you. So just as Job has done, help us to focus our attention on you and trust your mercy and control in the dark and messy places of our lives today. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to cover our sin and offer us the resurrection Job so desperately longed for. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, friends, could you please do me a favor and share this episode with three or more people? And please go to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and review because that is the absolute best way to help others find out about this show. Also, be sure to listen to episodes one and two while you're there, whether it's a refresher if you've already listened to them or for the first time. I absolutely promise that these two prep episodes will be super helpful even if you've been studying with me for months. They continue to set the stage for all we have already covered, plus all that is to come in our study time together. My hope is these will be just the refresher we all need to keep showing up because I believe that God has some incredible things in store for us in those episodes and in all of our future studies together too. And remember, if you are curious about digging into any of the things that we have talked about today, be sure to check out the show notes by swiping up on your podcast app screen to see them below. But if you can't find them there, they're always available at mfaring.com in the show notes section of the podcast pages. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. <laughs>